Welcome to episode 12 of MADE, the podcast about purpose-driven design, making, and manufacturing. Today we're going to be talking about spatial shaming. Let's continue our conversation. Hey everyone, welcome back to MADE. Uh, with me always is Ray Pena. Greetings. And to my right is Claudia Bergen. Hello. And I am Jose Valcarcel. How are you guys doing this week? Not bad, and you guys? Doing good. No? Doing yeah. some work outside. How was the 4th of July for you? Um, Relatively calm here. You know, just uh, relaxing and uh, not a whole lot of uh, not a whole lot of noise, fortunately. Yeah. No, we, we had fireworks here. I, and actually, I thought the the, fi- the main fireworks here in D.C. were supposed to be canceled, but they still went through with them at the end, and they were terrible, apparently. Oh, I oh. didn't know they were terrible, but we had plenty of fireworks mm-hmm. in, in our neighborhood, and it's in, in our new neighborhood, so it was kind of fun. It was just mm-hmm. seeing like all the kids being outside and hanging out with their parents and yeah. playing with fireworks. And that I think it was the here at least here in DC because it was rainy and cloudy. It was better for that kind of fireworks, sort of the low to the ground fireworks, because apparently that's why the the ma- the main fireworks at, at the at the monuments were terrible because the clouds were in the way and it was just a really too crappy. much moisture. Right, yeah. and apparently they started. <laughs> they realized the fireworks were kind of crappy, and they started interlacing scenes from previous years. <laughs> oh, no. So you would oh, see like boy. these crappy fireworks with the clouds, and then all of a sudden the angle would change, and it'd be like beautiful fireworks. <laughs> oh, nice. And it's because I, I don't know. This uh, I had lunch with a fr- with a friend, and she was telling me this. You know, so. uh, that kind of doesn't surprise me. You know, it is DC, yeah, the city of deception. <laughs> <laughs> So it doesn't it surprise is. me much. Yeah, and it's also the city. It's funny because uh, it's a tri-state area in a way. Yeah. If DC were a state, and DC is the only one that allows fireworks. Right. So you you see Marylanders coming and you know crossing this the the city line to to buy fireworks and then taking back it back out. to. <laughs> Interesting. No voting, but yes on fireworks. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Did they vote on that? <laughs> well, there's no loss. You can do whatever you want. I stopped paying taxes, for example. Yeah. Excellent. No, I pay my taxes if you're listening, IRS. They're not. Just listening. in case. Yes, just in case yeah. they're not listening. <laughs> All right, let's get right into some news. So our first news story, and uh, I added this because, uh, well, let me just get that. So it's President Obama has chosen the designers of his uh, presidential library. Um, what do you guys think about this story? It's th- the way the article is phrased, and maybe it's just because this particular uh, firm has done a lot of projects that are in the same vein as projects I w- used to work on. I've heard of them before. I've heard of Todd William, Billy Tissin. Um, but uh, what what do you guys think about this? I, I, I know it's phrases like it's a small husband and wife firm. Um, I didn't think they were that small. Yeah, I thought that was quite interesting the uh, the phrasing of the of the title, because mm-hmm. uh, when you start going through and reading the article, their um, their portfolio of projects definitely is not indicative of a small firm, nor the fact that they won the 2013 National Medals of Arts. Uh, you know, both of them for their work. Also, something you don't expect from 
the way they worded it as a small husband and wife firm. You know, you, mm-hmm. you would think, uh, you know, working in your garage, a small team, you know, little little studio. <laughs> Once you start reading it, you realize that that was just clickbait, and they they, they hooked you. It's too late. You got to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'll say this: I don't know if it's so much clickbait because they're not, you know, they're not the. You know, Claudia used to work for a large firm. They're not RTKL. They're not HOK. They're not SOM in the sense that they've got hundreds of yeah. people working a for them. Yes, yeah. yeah. They're not well, huge. Yeah, I wouldn't say they're not star architects, though. Uh, m- and maybe they're not star architects in the traditional sense. They're not, you know, Sahadi. They're not Calatrava. They're not Frank Gehry. They're not known that well. But they, at least to me, they were known. And that's because, you know, I used to work doing a lot of arts buildings. And that's mainly what they've done. Mm. That's why they're doing the presidential library. You know, he didn't pick a residential firm to do the presidential library. Correct. Right, that wouldn't happen. They're qualified, obviously, to do this work. But you know, the firms that I used to work with, where we were doing, you know, forty million dollar theaters, we were like 10, 12 of us doing it, and we would, you know, we would have like four or five theaters, and and that's how we would work. Um, so they, I think they are a small firm. They're not unknowns, though. And it was almost racist if they were unknowns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the feeling I got when I read the uh, the title in the first paragraph. But it it, be, mm-hmm. it quickly became evident that they are not uh, a small time operation. Right. What I liked is that is the the local firm, the interactive design architect idea. idea. Yeah. The fact that they're woman owned. Mm-hmm. Um, they're Chicago based, which is great. Because you know they didn't have to do that. I guess maybe they did, right? Because it is it. You need to have a local firm in the project. Um, well, yeah. Well, I mean, you don't exactly have to. I don't know if the presidential library is, is it the federal building. I don't, I don't know how quite that how yeah. quite how that works. I think the um, founding because it is it is a foundation, right? So it might be. So I don't. L- I wonder where they're getting their funding from right. for it. But then the other parts about the article that I liked as well was that um. Is. The differ- how the design is being differentiated between other presidential libraries, which got me thinking about the one that we've been to, mm-hmm. the latest, I guess, is the Kennedy, the Kennedy, the Kennedy Library in Boston. Mm-hmm. And that is the hardest, uh, it's really hard to get to. It was like a pain to get there. We had to go to Jamaican Plains, and then you have to like walk a bunch just to get and to the place. The but that's because we didn't have a car. We were visiting. We were visiting Boston. We didn't have a car. Yeah, and it's in the water. And but the building itself was very like, it, it was not personal at all. Like there was really nothing, nothing interesting in there from, from my perspective. Even even to learn about him, or to learn about um, no, the city, about or to him. learn about. Uh, but so the way that they're saying that this this will be like the design for for Obama's library will be is. Um, it will be a cultural hub, a uh, space for public reflect, and it's more like a reflection of their administration mm-hmm. and the priorities within their administration. So they're going to have health, education, and community. Mm. And I'm wondering if they're going to also have like science-based like themes to like uses within their within the library, mm-hmm. because he was the first, if not the only recent president that actually had science fairs at the White House, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, really big in being a proponent of STEM. So it's an interesting thing that, you know, your siren minority 
architect and um, is very reflective of his of his administration administration. At least to me, that's somewhat of history. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting. I wonder. I've, I we've only been to the one. We've only been to Kennedy's, and you know, obviously Kennedy wasn't very involved in his library <laughs> being built. Of course not. Because <laughs> was dead. Yeah. Um, so it'd be interesting <laughs> to see <laughs> how the other lib presidential libraries are in that sense, like where you know presidents were more involved <laughs> yeah. or involved at all in in their presidential libraries. Um, yeah, but you could how they're shaped. Yeah. You know, um, I will tell you uh, one of the things that I'm disappointed about the article is obviously there was some kind of submission for the uh, for the competition and they don't show what the there submission was. So I feel like I'm a, I'm a little bit um, d disappointed. I feel like they, they kind of gypped me out of seeing what that submission was. I understand it was just a preliminary deal, and the, the actual final design may not even look anything like it, but I, I, I wanted to see what was the material, what was the design that helped them get selected. And I think mm -hmm. the, the article fails there because I have no idea what it was. No, I agree with that. That's very true. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I, I'm i glad that they're both being, um, well, I guess they, they're equal partners, but I'm glad they both mentioned, and I'm, I'm glad uh, it's a smaller firm. It's not your SOMs or your HOKs of the world. Mm -hmm. so. so, cool. <laughs> That's your phone. Let me make that a hard break there. Or was it your watch? What would just vibrate? <laughs> Alright, we'll move on. Stop it, Oscar. It was my flying watch. Okay. Sorry. Alright, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick it right back up. Alright, well, let's get to the next story, which uh, is in a, a little bit of making. And uh, we're talking about the IKEA Hackers website. Ray, you added this. Why don't you tell us a little bit about. Yeah, um, I, I added this because uh, you and I and, uh, and Claudia, the three of us, have often discussed IKEA both uh, during the podcast and, and off the air, and uh, we kind of played with the idea, and, and uh, I think we discussed it briefly in one of our previous podcasts about you know using some IKEA items to make other things with, mm -hmm. and um, uh, during that conversation, during some of those conversations, the uh, the concept of just going in there and coming out with a different product that. IKEA does actually does not make mm -hmm. from the stuff that IKEA does make, and yeah. it turns out that that's a thing. People are doing that, and I had no idea people were actually doing that. And uh, the website's called IKEA Hackers, uh, and it's ikeahackers.net. I'm sure you have the link in the notes. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And I was actually surprised to see the the sheer abundance of projects that they have of of uh, for all all the areas of your home that can take IKEA items and uh, either modify them to be used in a way they weren't intended or actually redesign them to, in, and in the case of some of these projects, I think they look better. I think mm -hmm. they're nicer redesigned uh, uh, from the project they did on the website than the original product is. So I was, I was really quite surprised that this was a thing because we have been kind of discussing it very casually, and it turns out somebody took it much more seriously than, than we have. <laughs> Yeah, no, um, I, I like the website. Um, I think a lot of them are a lot of them are sort of ch just slight changes on yes on the furniture, so like adding things. There's some that are pretty cool, like the 
the four IKEA cat hacks <laughs> I think are cool because I'm a cat person even though currently I don't have a cat but, but yeah I mean I, I've always liked their I, I like their website I'd seen it a couple of times before I feel like it when I've been doing searches for stuff um, but I've never looked at it in depth like I'm looking at it now mm-hmm. um, but I think yeah the IKEA hack is definitely a, a, a thing that we're all talking about doing maybe a couple of projects for the podcast for and, uh, and it's something to check out you know there's a lot of good ideas mm-hmm. I think it's also good as a recycling uh, type of tool because if you go to Craigslist and you put you type in Ikea and then one of the names one of the funky names for any of the <laughs> furniture um, you will find you know like secondhand um, furniture and like pretty good prices so mm-hmm. if you were to like let's say you need like a specific dresser for your kids room and it's a specific color that you want or a theme or whatever then you go to the ideas uh, to the IKEA hackers website and then there's an ideas tab click on that and you find like an idea and then like try to go to Craigslist find that particular furniture mm-hmm. it's not gonna cost you like the same prices it's gonna cost you at IKEA obviously they're brand new and then you're gonna hack it Mm-hmm. And whether it w- you know turns out great or not, it's good. But it's like there's this you know upcycling aspect to yeah. to IKEA, and then the idea part of it too. Like it's sort of like an inspiration. So I really like that mm-hmm. that um, the green factor of this. While it's not evident here, there is that green factor. Yeah, um, and you know the other part of it is, uh, I think interesting actually because I've been thinking about making a main topic where we could um, I saw an article about like the best the best approaches when you go to Ikea or something or how to like make the most out of your Ikea experience and I think it'd be interesting if maybe we had a similar conversation amongst us and maybe made that a main topic at one point as to yeah, how you get the most out of, out of Ikea you know yeah Jose just I think our, our uh, we did our, our best time at IKEA recently. Yeah, we did a half an hour, maybe 24, no, 25 no, no, no. minutes. 25 minutes and bought how many things? Like eight things? Like eight things. <laughs> oh, the shopping spree. <laughs> the shopping yeah. spree. We like went in there with a purpose. We knew exactly what we were going to get. And we shopped a little more. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep, you know, yep. I think the last time I was in IKEA was like seven years ago or something like that. It's been a while. Yeah, well, you don't have one near you right no, now. No, I right? don't have like, one near me. The closest one to you is the, the one that's <laughs> closest to us. Yes, the one that's in your backyard is the closest one. Right, like we're ten minutes away from it. Yeah, we're actually much closer yeah. now, which is like not good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that shows you how close because it it's like two hours away from Ray. <laughs> yep. And that's the closest one. Yeah. Yeah, but no, definitely check out the website. I I I love doing the IKEA hacks. You know, like just changing their stuff just a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we it's a good base. Yeah, and we talked about, you know, their some of their best uh you we have often said that IKEA is high design with poor quality. Right. But uh some of the items like the, and we've mentioned it before, the feet are actually surprisingly well made and they're yeah. very useful for other things. So I I I uh, thought that this website um was kind of interesting in in that it has it has done kind of the stuff that we were talking about mm-hmm. in the past. And this is something that, you know, now that uh, 
listeners don't know this, but we actually, the three of us, have done one of these things already. We remember that the island that we had at our old place, oh, that yeah. we're now sitting in pieces behind yeah, me we here. We we did that out of IKEA parts, and we ma- we went to your shop, made a frame and everything for it. Yeah. So maybe when I put it together, oh. I'll take a bunch of pictures of it, and we can oh. try and post it. Was that like eight somewhere. or nine years ago? Yeah, it was, it's a while ago because I know they don't make that piece of furniture anymore. So so maybe I'll take a few pictures when I put it back together one of these days, and we can sort of show it off. Where we did is basically an IKEA hack, you know, and we made an I- uh, an island at our last place where we had a tiny kitchen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, it was like a great conversation piece too. Yeah. Everybody loved it. Yeah, when they we moved, assumed it came with the apartment. Right. <laughs> when we moved out, actually, the people that owned the apartment wanted to buy it. Oh, did they? At one point, yeah, oh. they made. An, they were like, "Oh, would you think about with selling it?" And I'm like, "Yeah, maybe it's the right price," but then it didn't really go anywhere. But they were considering buying it because it just made a great use of the space. Yeah. So. So yeah, cool. And I have some pictures of it at the old space too. So mm-hmm. yeah. No, I, I definitely like the IKEA hack. So let's move on to our last story of the day. And this one comes to us, I don't remember from where, but it's Airbus has filed a revolutionary patent for 3D printing an aircraft exterior in its entirety. So before we get too much into the the actual patent and the, the, the process of it, if you found out your plane was 3D printed, would you still want to fly in it? <laughs> Interesting question. I I would feel safe. I wouldn't have a problem with it. Yeah. You would? Yep. What about you, Claudia? It's French, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I believe it Airbus is. is French. Yeah, uh, maybe just because of that I would do it. Because <laughs> the um, destination would count, would be like an important thing. Um. I I think I would be okay with it, but I feel like some people would not. Some people would, would maybe question it. Um, well, you know the uh, the uh, legislation and and laws governing aircraft and airframes are quite stringent, and testing is uh, and you know stringent testing procedures required. So um, I would feel comfortable with that. I mean, uh, you never know; anything could could possibly happen, but it can happen with a with a regular conventional airplane. Right, yeah, those those things fall out of the sky all the time. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, all right, well, well, as you read this, though, so to me, this is less 3D printing. It is, it's an additive process, mm-hmm. but it's not 3D printing in the conventional way that I normally think about 3D printing. Um, no. What do you think about it? Well, it's also uh, a, kind of a, a little bit misrepresented because when, it's, when they say 3D... Uh, print an aircraft's exterior in its entirety. They don't mean a uh, a mono. They don't mean in one shot. Correct. They don't mean the the entire shell, wings, tail, uh, you know, cockpit. They don't mean doing it that way. But but printing it in sections. So the doors will be a section. The fuselage will be a section. Uh, the wings will be a section. It, things like that. Um, but the and we'll we'll kind of cover. The uh, this technology in the product of the week, but uh, it uses a selective laser sintering uh, technology, which has been around for uh, 15, maybe even 20 years uh, industrially. Mm-hmm. So uh, I agree with you; it's not traditional 3D printing. It is an additive process, but I think um, as far as th- as uh, 3D printing is concerned, I think that it's it's better. It's better than using plastics 
that are you're just relying on them to fuse kind of bond together uh, you know the fusing of these of these particles and of these pieces with lasers uh, gives me more uh, more confidence in the in the aircraft the finished product yeah, that's kind of, I mean I don't know if it gives me necessarily more confidence in the product um, but yeah it, it's cool and I, I appreciate the process of it I guess the other part I also wonder about if this should even be uh, patentable um, yeah I, it's interesting that you should say that because I think they're just patenting the process as applied to aircraft right which Again, it's not a. They're not pat patenting the process itself. I don't think you should be able to patent something. That that's like if I decided I'm going to patent this process to make glasses. Mm -hmm. You know, like like to drink out of. Yeah. Like the, the I shouldn't be able to do that. <laughs> like to, somebody else should be able to make a drinking glass using this process. Mm -hmm. it's, if you were telling me you're patenting the tintering process, then sh okay, whoever came up with it probably should be able to patent that. Well, it's interesting. I think the reason we're seeing uh, all these different products coming up is because those patents have expired, which right, would explain that. Wow. You know, yeah. that's usually what you see whenever, like, look at all the 3D printing stuff. That there's an explosion in 3D printing because uh, those patents have expired, and mm -hmm. that makes sense. But yeah, but this is a way of getting around that. Yeah. Like, you can't no longer patent that, so I'm going to patent the process of making a specific But maybe thing. they had to devise some other mechanism for making it a suitable air you know uh, aircraft mm -hmm. maybe it's something we're not aware of and i will clarify uh the article discusses application not um not the fact that they've received the patent right so that's, it could still be point. denied <laughs> that's oh, a fair wow. point yeah what do you think about all this claudia <laughs> um i would say what i found interesting about the article was that um as far as 3d printing metal it said that there's still lots of issues with the technology and its safety, mm -hmm. and that um, the I think it was Carnegie Mellon University was like very cautiously um, protective about you know whether this technology should be used right now. Yeah. As far as the stress testing and everything else, so you know that that I found that interesting that. Yeah, they did mention the uh, the inclusion of gas pockets in the printed uh, substrate. So I, I I think Claudia does have a, a good point there. But yeah. what we don't know is maybe, I'm just saying maybe, uh, part of the patent is figuring out how to avoid having weakness uh, between mm -hmm. the layers and in the inclusion of these gas pockets. Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's interesting. I wonder if that, that could be part of it. I, I think the other part of it is that, well, we were at Maker Fair, um, gosh, what was it? Is it site? Oh, no, I can't remember. A couple the name of weeks of ago? Yeah, a couple of weeks ago. That one of the organizations that's in charge of testing materials NSIT? was there. NSIT? Yeah. Yeah. Um, was there, and they were talking a lot about how they're trying to currently um, develop ways of testing 3D printed materials hmm. so that it doesn't have to be at uh, a. Um, destructive method currently to test the 3D printed material, whether it's plastic or metal or what it might be, you have to sort of destroy the, the, the piece, the part that you've made, to see how strong it is. They're trying to come up with standards of how it was, of how the material is, uh, is created and whatnot, so that you don't have to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. 
NIST, the NIST. National Institute of Standards and, and Technology. Technology. Right, yep. NIST, that's what it was. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's as, as more people are using 3D printers and are using it in different uh, different applications like this, you're going to get more of the more of standards for testing and more standards for how the material, what, what specs the material has to meet in order for it to be approved. Yeah. And as it should be. I mean, uh, when you're talking about aircraft, every component of the aircraft has to meet a certain uh, requirements of, of manufacturing and material quality. And I'm working on a project now for uh, the Air Force, uh, Air Force Base here in Dover. And um, it's really a very simple project. We did not make the part. I, mm. We didn't make the part. They just want slots in it. And there is quite a <laughs> quite a a significant amount of criteria for the two slots. That's all it is. One part, two slots, to be cut into this uh, part. And uh, even the method by which it is uh, cut, because it's for aircraft and testing aircraft, has to be done to an exact specification. Hmm. So it wouldn't surprise me, especially for aircraft, to have that kind of testing, rigorous testing. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I mean, I disagree a little bit with the fact that they want to patent this, but I, I appreciate that it's being used for different, that 3D printing is being used for different uses. So, yeah. hmm, I think. Pretty cool. Interesting story. Well, I'm curious if it, if it makes making airplanes faster and less expensive, does that translate to lower airfare? I doubt it. <laughs> Because I mean, I think a lot of it has to do. A lot of that has to do with you know the cost of jet fuel and crew and whatnot. What about weight? Might be lighter. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it makes it faster. That'd be great. Oh yeah, it'll be slipperier. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. It just makes just makes you crash quicker. Yeah. Oh no. Or, or float. Uh, <laughs> All right, let's move on to our main topic. I really hope people are not listening to the podcast while flying. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? No, it's actually a perfect time to listen to the podcast. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You just got to download it ahead of time. Yeah. yeah. They're confined and they can't go anywhere. Well, I like it. <laughs> the best time. Yeah. All right, let's get to our main story, a good topic today. So let's let's get to that. Let's get to our main topic today, which is uh, based on an article by Jay called "Jay Peter Wants to Erase the Spatial Shame Surrounding Social Housing." Claudia, why don't you tell us a little bit about this topic? Yeah, so um, the article is a review about um, some of the work by, uh, I guess, Miss uh, Miss Pitter, and she's based out of Canada, out of Toronto, and uh, she's written a lot about. Um, housing, social equity and housing issues and um, so some of the some of the essays that she's written uh, were, you know, city building in an age of hyper diversity, so issues with uh, diversity and housing and then designing the dignified social housing. That was another essay that she wrote about. And uh, the main the, the article basically goes through uh, her her views on spatial shame and the the idea of what the, the what dignified social housing should look like based on her own personal experience growing up in public housing 
and uh, and again this is in, in Canada but um, the way that the article describes it I mean it's, it could be anywhere any any type of uh, public housing found anywhere in the United States and uh, it's, it's an interesting article I have a lot of um, critiques over it but it'll be interesting to hear you know maybe what you guys have have to say about it. Well, I mean, I guess, what do, what do you guys think of when you think of spatial shaming? Like, what, what, is, what does it first come to mind for you guys? Because I wonder if it's the same for all of us. You know, it's interesting because I've never thought about it. I, it's not something that uh, has ever crossed my mind, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say the same for me. I really hadn't thought about it much. I mean, I think in these, to me, like, I clearly never thought about it living in Florida, right? But as I moved here and I saw some of, and, and I read this article and I started thinking about it, like to me, sort of that idea, that, that it, it was two ways, right? To me, it was sort of the idea that um, the people that live on those side of the train tracks, like in Florida, that was a thing. It was like, oh, if you lived in that side of the train tracks, that was a bad area. There was a sort of a shame in the space that you lived. There was a shame in that area that you lived in. Mm -hmm. um, and as I read more of this article, it was more of sort of like the people that live in there have this to me that's how I interpret it, that have this thing of like um, we don't take ownership of the area that we live in we are also thinking of like we live in this area we want to get out we don't have a an ownership of our place mm -hmm. um, so it's interesting in that sense so I mean I don't know maybe that's how I've seen it so far well you know that's interesting uh, that sense of ownership uh, and even in the article it discusses the fact that she lived there for 10 years so what's funny is not having a sense of ownership and yet residing someplace for a decade I think that's a, a quite a uh, uh, an opposing view of a place where you live and you know as you guys know I grew up in, in poverty in Florida and uh, you know it was not unusual for eight to ten people living in a small two-bedroom house and uh, my mom and grandma would go out and sweep the public sidewalk mm -hmm. so uh, we clearly did not own the house and you know it was uh, right. what you would call a, you know a ghetto but uh, there was still this sense of pride in which you lived in everyone knew you didn't own it you didn't own it but you didn't have to live like it was something you didn't own. So that's why I find it so confusing, this idea of spatial shaming, because uh, I grew up on, on that wrong side of the tracks, um, not in, not in uh, these public housing blocks like this. Uh, so that's a different thing. And, I, and it's funny because I don't remember seeing any of these in Florida, uh, but it, uh, in New York, you've seen these in New York, you've seen these in Baltimore. I'm not sure uh, in D.C., but I'm assuming these public... Uh, Housing blocks exist there as well, and it's a, a a whole different feel. I mean, you clearly, when you are there, it feels different. And the you know to be able to pinpoint the exact reason why it feels that way, I've never even thought about. Yeah. Yeah. See, and and that's where my critique of the of the article and of her point of view, her perspective comes into play because I think that. The reason why we're talking about uh, space shaming, or she's talking about space shaming as a whole, is because of uh, the recent uh, perspective, like the different, the, the recent perspectives on placemaking that we've been hearing from urban development. You know that you have to sort of live in this really nice community that's been developed with a specific intention in mind. 
and then you know market-based development that's specific to a a social status or a, a specific affluence so therefore if you don't fit that specific social class or um, for instance you know my mom has this, this this idea that you know brand new homes are better than old homes Mm -hmm. And there's really, you know, and we went through that this weekend and we explained to her how that's, it's not necessarily the case. Uh, it's not like cars. Mm -hmm. <laughs> homes mm -hmm. are not like cars. So, um, so I think that this shame just started developing now because of the smart growth movement of placemaking, which is very intentional as, as to, well, what, what, who defines the place, how it's defined, and what makes a place. Mm -hmm. So somebody else is defining all of this for for someone, and like you like you Ray said, when when someone lives in in a public housing, er, you know, or in poverty, and at that particular moment, you don't necessarily see it that way, as in it's a shame, as you know, as you're living in the shameful shame <laughs> shame area. She does. She did. Because I think it's an individual right. issue, and Absolutely. I think it's a it's a it's a social issue not necessarily something that's attributed to the building itself. So if we're looking at it from a um, architectural perspective or a, an urban planning perspective, it has nothing to do with that. It, it, it's more about the individual emotions or like emotional healing that she needs to go through, maybe something else. You know, she mentioned something about, um, you know, she remember, she, rec she recalled having seen uh, drug dealers and you know sexual predators there. Well, what does that have to do with the building and, and mm -hmm. well, no, I, I mean, I, I agree with what it. you're saying, but it does. I mean, and I agree, it's, it's a personal thing. We've met a lot of people here in DC that live in public housing that don't at all see it as some kind of shame, you know, and they they talk about it and and almost no, that's not a badge of honor, but they talk about it in a certain way. I think like, yeah, I'm doing this, but it's dignified, have, right? There's a there's a different dignity behind it. Um, but you can't argue though that there is some places where sections, and I guess it's both. <laughs> there's sections that are associated with a certain class of people, right? That's just how people see it, and and I say it goes both ways. I remember we we met, I forget who it is. We met somebody that was from Florida once, from the town I came from, which was West Palm. And I was like, oh yeah, that's you know that's the same area of Palm Beach County. And I asked her, what high school did you go to? And she was ashamed of saying what high school she went to, not because it was a poor high school, but because it was the opposite, because she had gone to Benjamin, which was a preppy school. <laughs> you know, so uh -huh. she had a certain shame to where she had gone to high school. To have been privileged. To have been privileged, mm -hmm. right? That's interesting. That's like the opposite of this uh, article. Right. It's like this a privilege article, shaming, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and, and it also goes back to the type of work that that, that woman was doing. She was doing right. international development and working with uh, uh, less developed countries, you know, mm -hmm. in, in Africa and stuff like that. So you have to have this, you know, humble mm -hmm. humbleness to you, to the work that you do. Otherwise, it's kind of yeah, or, or, yeah. hypocritical. But, um, but yeah. you know what I'm saying, though, that there are certain areas that sort of do carry that in certain places that carry that sort of view of people. But yes. you know what's interesting is what you both are saying is that it's not the place that is carrying that, it's the people that inhabit those places. They've got this notion, whether it's right or wrong, they have this notion and that is where it's coming from, which is a difficult, it's a difficult 
problem to fix architecturally because every single individual has a different notion. Mm-hmm. That That's a very interesting, complex thing. And it's interesting uh, what you pointed out, Claudia, that, uh, that uh, Jay Pitter has basically done this kind of postmodern retrospection of this stage of her life. She is looking at those 10 years that were 20 some odd years ago with a postgraduate degree under her Mm -hmm. arm and probably, and and I'm not saying it's for certain, but maybe there was some some trauma, some psychological trauma that has locked those 10 years very firmly into her psyche and that is why she, to her, uh, like you pointed out, to her, it had this shame that she has not ever been able to forget. Because, uh, you know, like you were saying, uh, when I grew up, we didn't know that where we were living was mm. a poverty-stricken ghetto, and I grew up just fine, not even realizing that we were poor. <laughs> you see, that's, inter- that's interesting in itself. I wonder at what age do you start to realize this sort of spatial shaming or this sort of seeing how our neighborhoods viewed it? When you're a little kid, you're just having fun, you're just playing, you're just like, of course. out with your friends. So. I think I think it matters with the other, mm-hmm. the other like the 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 person who judges you on it. Like mm-hmm. bullying has happened, right? And right. all kind of has always been the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where the, you know, in some in s- for certain people, then maybe in their in their experience, they've somebody told them that oh well you live in that area, mm-hmm. and then therefore oh they had that realization, mm-hmm. or they they were made to feel that way. Um, yeah, like I, you know, I used to live in a very diverse community, and I didn't realize it until I, you know, like just recently, I didn't live in a diverse community, and then mm-hmm. I, I realized, oh wow, I, how did I not realize that, you know, how wonderful it was for me to live in a very diverse community? So it's interesting. When I was a little kid, that's that's what it was. The other the other thing that I wanted to point out is she she brings up uh, revitalization, and that's an interesting thing because there's a, you know, th- there's always this uh, narrative of these places that are shameful that need revitalization, and that's also a, an interesting narrative because that while we we can think of they have a very architectural uh, problematic or resol- uh, sol- like a solution to them. Um, they're not necessarily an, an issue of architecture. Again, they're a social issue mm-hmm. because most of these places are are in the need of revitalization because someone, the specific private owner, has allowed it to just stay in place, hasn't done anything to, to invest in that place. Mm-hmm. So it's been very intentional. That revitalization has been is usually an intentional act. It's self-imposed. So blight doesn't just happen by chance or because of the people that are there and because of the drugs and because of that. It's because someone has either the city or developers or private owners have decided not to invest in that. And then later on, because of placemaking, oh, now we can invest. It's a good time to invest because we'll get more profit out of it. Now we'll call it revitalization. Now we'll call it that we're doing a good thing for this area when all the whole time you were the reason why this has been going on. So if I understand what you're saying, you're saying that the reason even why 
you know, Jay Pitter here, and some of the people see it as it's an architecture issue. It's not necessarily because architecture can fix this problem, but it's more of a neglect of the architecture issue. Yeah, and it's and it's not necessarily neglect. It's it's a very self-imposed neglect. Like mm -hmm. it's it's intentional, and that's yeah. and usually they don't say mm -hmm. that. They they always mm -hmm. frame it as a as a need, because it's you know it, it the people have done it, mm -hmm. or it's been you know or the social factors in this place in this community have have caused that to happen, mm. and then you have this defensible spaces, um, which we talked other about, narrative yeah, we, as we well. We talked about the defensible spaces thing, yeah, mm -hmm. um, which I had issues with the idea of it. Um, mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, well, so I mean, let's talk about it from that sense. So do we do we all agree? I, I think we'll start with the microphone. Do we all agree? that it's not really an architecture issue? It's interesting because uh, listening to you talking, both of you, um, it sounded really um, that it was more of a maintenance issue. You know, uh, everything has to be maintained. Buildings need to be maintained uh, mm -hmm. regardless of what that building is. Uh, if you have a little shed in your backyard of 100 square feet, guess what? The wind blows, sometimes it's going to take some shingles off with it. If you don't repair those shingles, you get water intrusion. When you get water intrusion, you get rot. So right. there is a certain level of maintenance that is the responsibility of the owner of the project, which is interesting because who owns social housing? Is it an individual investor? Is it the uh, the counties of the city? Who actually is the owner? And I think that kind of ambiguity is uh, what might lead to this kind of... Uh, uh, derelict of duty for the maintenance of the buildings because since nobody is sure, <laughs> nobody mm -hmm. cares, and the people that inhabit these uh, these uh, social housing units, they they probably don't even know, and uh, you know so if they they feel that well if the owner doesn't care then I don't care maybe they throw their furniture out in the front yard and it might you know it might be this kind of snowball effect um, because maybe the boundaries aren't clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean that's why slumlords are still, you know, here in D.C. You can, you can still be paying fifteen hundred a month for a you know a two bedroom and live in a slumlord building. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the and the the sh the shameful act of the the, the slumlord is is yeah. to me more shameful than than even what you're seeing there. <laughs> yeah. Now I will mm -hmm. tell you, I, I looked at some of these uh, images. I don't know if you saw the images. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen any of these social housing uh, in New York. When I, I lived in New York in probably the mid to late 80s. Um, in uh, What is it now? It's right next to the airport, right next to LaGuardia. Uh, and um, the there was social housing there. And is it Queens? is a... Yes, Queens, Queens, but it was Queens? there was another area for it. Uh, I think Blessing? it was Jackson Heights. So I think it was Jackson mm -hmm. Heights. I, I mean, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, so when I look at this, by comparison, you, you, they actually have trees. I mean, this is clean streets. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's very nice. By comparison, this is gorgeous. Uh, yeah, and I, I did think that when I saw the building, I was like, this is quite a nice building. Uh -huh. <laughs> the, the, the high rise was quite nice. And the other, the, the low rise buildings that were pictured with the furniture sort of up front or whatever, um, they clearly weren't well maintained, but I didn't think they were terrible looking buildings by any means which kind of triggers that back to our previous conversation you know in her mind mm -hmm. this was a place of so of uh, 
you know, of sh uh, sh uh, shaming, you know, mm -hmm. of uh, spatial shaming. I am curious how she would have felt growing up in a a uh, Baltimore social housing unit by comparison. Uh, I have driven uh, by those many times, uh, and uh, it's it's really kind of weird that there wouldn't be a single tree anywhere near those those units. Everything is anything alive is simply cut down because it's too much maintenance. So uh, I'm kind of curious. She and and it goes back to what we we're talking about in the individual. She didn't know how good she actually had it, <laughs> thinking that it was so terrible. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I think that goes back to like I think if we all agree that it's not necessarily the architecture that goes back to the thing of it is clearly an individual thing. It's clearly a, a matter of perspective to a degree and comparison. But you know, I I think back to an issue here in D.C. Right, um, something that's we that's been brought up to the mayor. They they've been looking for places to put in social housing, right? And they were trying to was they trying to they were homeless shelters. shelters. They were homeless shelters and they were trying to sort of spread them out throughout all the wards of D.C. Um, so that means even the, the poor, the rich, were, it was, it was going to be spread out throughout the city. And there's just been battles where people in Upper Northwest, where it is sort of the more, I don't call it affluent, but it's sort of the nicer part it of the is. city, but it is the affluent part of the city, refused to allow the homeless shelter to be there, right? So there is a certain stigma being put on these shelters and in this by the same token, public housing would be seen the same way in that area of the city. So the spatial shaming is being put in by people that think, don't put that near my house. Mm -hmm. right? Again, it goes back to the idea of housing as an investment here in the United States now. If I bought this house, I'm paying this much for it, I don't want this kind of housing near my house because it's going to be the value of my house down or whatever it is. Yeah. So there is a certain level of shaming being put in by, I don't know if you want to call it market, the real estate market or by home ownership or what it is but I think there is some of that that is not just well I I feel about it this way and yeah, it's, it's just a, a social thing. class because it's a social you know, issue all, the, mm -hmm. all of those those homeless shelters were going to be brand new right. they were going to be designed by the private sector it was going to be a pu public private contemporary buildings. yeah they were going to be you know perfectly you know perfectly good buildings that Right. fit within the context of the architecture, mm -hmm. the surrounding context. So it wasn't so much about the building itself. It and even though people were complaining about, well, how many how many bathrooms will they have? And, you know, just trying to find a reason to not have more about the use and the people right. than the actual building itself. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting because they, they're not rejecting the buildings. They're rejecting the people that are going to inhabit the buildings. Right, exactly. they're rejecting the use. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And that's where I think some of this is valid, and that that's where the shame comes from, right? Is that the the people that are, you know, again, I see it as you you're trying to help somebody, right? The people that are supposed to be helping this group of people that need the help are sort of saying, yeah, we'll help you, just not in my backyard. Yeah. Go over there, and we'll help you. <laughs> You know, it's, it's interesting you yeah. say that because we had a similar issue here in Delaware. Mm -hmm. It was uh, for a uh, – there was two things. Uh, this year it was a homeless shelter that was uh, apparently too close to a church, and the church mm -hmm. objected. And <laughs> oh, my God. It, it, it is absolutely the most ridiculous thing. Uh, the church actually uh, objected, and they, they had so many 
parishioners that they all got together and signed a petition to ensure that a uh, and it was going to be another uh, a be just like you described a beautiful modern well thought out and planned homeless shelter for maybe I think 50 people it was not a lot of people uh, there was clearly a need and uh, and it was the church that objected and it was if not last year the year before here in my own town of 82 8500 uh, people they objected to a a veterans home a kind of like a oh, halfway wow. house veterans home yes and um, it was quite ridiculous so I, I think that you bring up the interesting point um, it's not it's not the housing it's not the buildings it is the people that are being uh, rejected. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the shame part comes yep, from. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it's a cycle because then, you know, like even when in our new neighborhoods, you know, there's low-income housing around here. And one of the biggest issues that I have for, for about the, the, the buildings, it, and I feel really bad, and I like totally want to do already go into the ANCs, to the community meetings and everything else, because the, the windows are aluminum windows mm -hmm. and you know I can only think of what will happen when, when it gets cold what you think where is this in place? around here around oh, they're not aluminum windows they're, they're steel not, windows they're steel windows mm -hmm. they're, they're just the old steel, steel windows, windows oh they're so not thermally pain. broken they're single right, they're they're, not there's thermally. no thermal there's no double pane there's no thermal break yeah so you're either freezing or you're spending a ton of money trying to heat up the trying the place. to heat up the, mm -hmm. the place right. and you know the, the, again the, these are perfectly good uh, buildings or apartments these are not like you know public housing or anything like that but it does make you know it does tell you a little bit more about where the priorities are in renovating and doing the maintenance for mm -hmm. these buildings and and then the impact that that has on the on the users themselves and the mm -hmm. people who live there mm -hmm. because I can only think of how hard it will be in, in the in the winter right. and and you know how how used to they are mm -hmm. Yeah, no, but I'll say this when it comes to that, and these are from people that I've met through you that live in public in public housing right now, that some of them are even afraid. They want the place renovated, but they're afraid of it because a lot of the, a lot of people get kicked out of the place to get renovated and they never get let back in. Yes. Right. So again, and that just goes back more to the the the. I mean, I don't know if that's part of the shame of it, but it's it's sort of there. You're stuck there. Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're damned if you do damned if you don't now what do you guys think about uh, this issue that we, we briefly touched on the, the sense of ownership like who actually owns the social housing is that uh, is the ownership by the private market uh, or is it by the local government it, it, it's so confusing to me mm -hmm. uh, and you know I would imagine that the inhabitants would be a bit confused as well, not knowing uh, who the exact owner is. So, I mean, are you are you aware of, of how it works? You know this pretty well. Right? Yes. Yeah. So, by by law, the information is available. It's mm -hmm. very easily easily found. Here in D.C., most of the public housing is owned by, by the city. And the city takes care of not to do the maintenance of it of mm -hmm. these buildings so and, and it's exactly what you're saying is that the general public the general consensus um, every time I've, I've brought up specifically on the solar solar for all um, work that I've been doing and actually I was asked about this 
um, when I was talking about lead water because I was trying to get them to include <coughs> public housing in this legislature for lead water. And a council member asked me, well, I don't have a wand, a magic wand. How do you think we could, we could solve this problem? Of including, you know, doing of of of, of including public housing in the lead water um, testing and, and upgrading of the of the plumbing, and I looked at him and I was like, maintenance. It's it's the first thing you have to look at is maintenance, and then you have to tie it into where other sources of of funding that that's available, such as solar. And um, but you have to be able to, you know, if you're going to do solar panels, you have to include other stuff. But what was really crazy is that. Not even the council members really truly understood who owned the public housing, even though that data is readily available. Mm. Because everybody has to, um, there, there's, you know, there's comma, there's a commercial residential data on who owns well, what. And here in D.C., the most ridiculous part of that councilman saying that he, he clearly doesn't understand how um, the laws of the city, right? Because in D.C., if you want to do a private project even and your house is of a certain age you have to disclose how much uh, lead paint you might be w working on there has to be waivers signed and there has to be even a permit pulled it's like it's part of the permit process so if legislation exists for lead paint abatement and all those things you can easily put you can write similar laws for lead in the water you know, lead pipes. The plumbing for the plumbing. Right. The pipes, it, it's, yeah. it's, there's precedent for it. But, I mean, I think, I don't want to go too much into the lead, the lead part of it, because it's an issue, it's an issue. Um, that's, that's. Well, that's it's beyond the scope of this right now. Right, that's not yeah. a question. Um, I think it's interesting what you're saying is that, yeah, most of the housing is owned by, most of the public housing is owned by cities usually, right, whatever. I think the other part we haven't mentioned, though, is, just like there's public housing, there's also low-income housing, right, yeah. which is slightly different. And I think that also carries a certain sh spatial shame, if you will, to it, right? Mm -hmm. And I know here in D.C., when there's a new development, a certain number of houses or a certain number of units need to be made affordable housing. And how that works, it's a whole messed up process as well. But that is one way where a person can own a affordable unit that they own themselves. Right, and it's a lottery that happens. To, you put yourself on a list, and it's a lottery that happens. Then you end up owning the place. The, the key is when you sell it, you have to go through the same process of selling it. It has to be sold as an affordable unit as well. Yeah, and that particular unit, talk about shame, right? That particular unit, affordable housing unit on a condo, is usually near the trash compactor. Or it's usually the farthest away, like in the, the smallest. Worst, in the smallest. It doesn't have the least the desirable. Yeah, no, but and they actually take all of the all of the 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 expensive finishes from the from. Right. So if somebody comes and visits you, one of your neighbors comes they to know. visits you, they know that you're, you're in an affordable right. housing unit. And there goes there goes the shame again. That's not something that a person imagines. It's also something that actually happens. Right? Like I worked on a project, and I'm not going to mention any names or what firm or anything, but it was clear that that they <laughs> when we were taking it when we were walking through with the client, they were like, yeah, this is going to be the affordable housing one. And it was a studio. It was a tiny studio. It didn't really have a window to the outside. It had a window to a, uh, <laughs> a light well. Huh. So you would your window was looking at brick all the way around. And, mm -hmm. and that was the only yeah, window? That was the only window. Mm. And it was going to be to not, not even an alley. Like an alley would be an upgrade to this. 
it was literally to like a well you know like a ventilation well basically mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and that's how they see it so because they make those decisions it also carries a certain level of shame I, I, I don't know I think for myself I'm sort of seeing it that it's not not just a, a personal issue it's also something that to a degree gets imposed on you yeah and I think that's new that's fairly recent personal that's fair enough yeah cool alright well this is a great topic I think mm-hmm. it's it's definitely hopefully it will get people thinking about their surroundings yeah and, and if yeah. you know if you've had experience with this or if you know somebody or even if in the city that you're if you're listening to this in a city that you are living in has is having current issues with you know public housing or whatever I think I'd love to hear about it send yeah. us an email or a tweet or whatever or if they have some kind of insight that we didn't uh, right exactly yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so interesting topic. <laughs> I almost said a good topic. I don't know if I want to say that, um, but it's an interesting discussion. But you know what it what it uh, turned into? It started mm-hmm. as a as a topic about architecture and completely evolved into an issue of of so, a topic of social issues. Right. So yeah. it's well, quite interesting. It, yeah, I mean, I, I think if, I, I don't know. I mean, we have close. We can all sort of give our closing comments, but I think. One of the things that became clear in this conversation is that it's not a design or architecture issue. It's clearly a social issue, at least to me it is. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you guys agree with that or not, yeah. but yeah. But the architecture is the the poster child. It's what you see that right. kind of defines it. So it's easy. Well, it's funny. Yeah. yeah, it's funny because to a degree you could have even pointed out that this is what's happening here. It, it sort of becomes like the arrow pointing at, like, yep, public housing right there, <laughs> which then... Yeah, it's a like, neon sign. Right. Yeah, it's either the solution or it's the hammer that makes it even right. harder. Yeah. yeah. Interesting, right. very interesting. Yeah, very good discussion, and let us know if you guys have some insight on it. We'd love to hear it. Um, but let's move on to the product of the week. For the product, it would be great. You found this product. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Uh Yeah, I found this because uh, it kind of ties into all the discussions we've been having about uh, the evolution of the technology for 3D printing and making and some of the things we've covered in the in the past about uh, injection molding right there, you know, on your kitchen countertop. Um, and, you know, tying in with the, uh, the uh, article we discussed earlier about uh, Airbus 3D printing and aircraft skins, Mm-hmm. Uh, the technology that uh, that uh, Airbus was filing the patent on is based on a process called sintering. And for our listeners who are not aware of uh, of sintering, that's when you take a um, when you take par- particles of uh, uh, dust or a, a powder and you fuse it together uh, with uh, lasers. And a lot of a lot of um, uh, tools, uh, industrial tooling, are, have been manufactured this way for 30 years, uh, not with lasers, but with high temperature and pressure. So the advent of the laser has kind of evolved the 3D printing technology. And so the product that uh, I, that I uh, dis- I don't know if discovered or found would be a better way to describe it, is by a company called Sintratech. Uh, and what they have done is they have taken this technology, which has been available for, I would say, 15 years or so, mm-hmm. uh, if not a little more, in an industrial setting. Um, if you had $500,000 or more mm-hmm. at your disposal, <laughs> and they have uh, kind of 
uh, shrunk it like a lot of the other 3D uh, technology that has been made for uh, the the home enthusiast or the homemaker or even just someone at home that is interested in tinkering, uh, where this technology has become uh, smaller and smaller and smaller, they have made a basically a desktop sintering unit. And when I saw this, I was I was quite amazed, not only by the miniaturization of the technology, but by and I and I know it's still expensive, but by the relatively inexpensive cost. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, they've got it. It's clearly a European company. They've got it at uh, five thousand euros, which is about fifty five hundred dollars. Um, again, if you are going to buy an industrial unit like this today, you are not touching it for less than a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars. So it's it brings this technology. I mean, I, I wouldn't say terribly affordable, but for less than than you know the price of of a car, you know half half the price of a car. Uh, I think that that kind of qualifies for that uh, region of affordability that uh, otherwise you wouldn't have access to. So I was quite fascinated. Um, the powder is expensive, but but what do you guys think about the ability to do this kind of manufacturing, basically at home on your desk? Well, I mean, I, I personally, I, I mean, I, I like all 3D printers. They all fascinate me to to a degree. I mean, this one's slightly different as well, and. Um, and it's funny because I think probably a lot of people are, are starting to get a uh, 3D printer fatigue. You know, there's so many in the market. Yes. But this one is is different. You know, it, it's a different process than most 3D printers out there. Um, I, I like the. I, I've always liked this kind of printer. I mean, it's because the cleanup is a lot easier, right? Most 3D printers, when you have any kind of overhang, if you're printing, say. Uh, think of it like the letter even to print a letter T. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a bad example because you print it laying down. <laughs> but anyway, if you wanted to have imagine a letter T, and you were to have sort of two pieces hanging over, right, kind of levering off of the main center. You have to build supports when you're doing it with the plastic PLA that you're moving back and forth, right? You have to support those edges. With this type of printer, you don't because you're sort of moving the print down in the into the printer and adding more the the material itself sort of supports itself as you're printing because you're hardening the layers um so i like that part of it it's it i think it's probably a little bit easier to print with it you can you don't have to think as much as to how you're going to print something how you're going to orient orient something and you can even print parts that are sort of linked together or tied into each other mm-hmm. um so it's very cool in that sense um i think this is less useful for more people than your regular 3D printer, but yeah, I mean, I, I like it. I, I would love to have one <laughs> because it would make a lot of things I want to make a lot easier to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I, I, I kind of glanced over is that this is actually uh, metal. It's a metal powder. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, calling it a 3D print is, or a 3D printer is kind of like a misnomer because mm-hmm. it's not really printing it's using a laser to right. solidify powder so right. it, it's it's an additive process much like you know the the what we talked about earlier about the the, the plane it's an additive process it's not i i don't know if i necessarily call it a 3d printer printing this is closer to 3d printing than i think the the, the jumbo jet 3d printing is as i use air quotes yes but yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm probably more on the average listener here mm-hmm. with on that <laughs> side that I'm just like most of this is going over my head. 
Yeah, I mean, because I is... think this is like the higher end printer side, right? Or, mm -hmm. but the fact that it's more affordable. Relatively, um, yeah. Yeah, but like it's more affordable to the you know twenty thousand dollars thing you would have to buy. It's like when you go and you you want to get a, a a laser cutter, you can spend you know ten thousand dollars, or now they're starting to come out with a sort of desktop ones that is two thousand mm -hmm. dollars. You know. Yeah. So what what's interesting? I guess the only thing I can add to this is that you know lately, like if you follow us on on Twitter and on Facebook, um, I recently attended the national maker fair um uh they had a like a whole day symposium or mm -hmm. session workshop um and it was it was really interesting because they talked about uh, there were a lot of makers specifically fab lab so fabrication lab um makers and and they were all based out of library in in, in library so there are a lot a lot of them are librarians and one of the things that they all mentioned is that we always have um, printers that are in the 2K, in the 2000 range. Mm -hmm. Like we have the, you know, the MakerBot, the, the, the cheaper uh, options because, yeah, you can do all the quick, easy things. But we also have the big, mm -hmm. higher-end machines that can produce a lot more because there's a range of, of makers out mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. now that have developed their craft in 3d printing so it's like what's next and how do we use this and what can i use because especially in prototyping um so that they can use these solutions and you know like a, a, a specific technology or cheaper technology in 3d printing won't do the, the job so they need to always have something more expensive and that is more well, and, right, and I agree. With, I think for a, a fabrication lab or a makerspace, it makes sense for them. And I say makerspace because a lot of those are for profit. It makes sense for them to have the more expensive printer because if you have a hundred dollar printer or whatever, a five hundred dollar printer, you know, somebody that's using the printer a lot would just make their own or buy their own rather than going to the fabrication space. You have to have a higher end one to sort of like draw the people in like, okay, I can't do what I need to do on mine. I need to go use that one for this mm -hmm. particular project mm -hmm. because that one can do things mine can't. Mm -hmm. you know. And I think it's pretty cool that the fact that, you know, again, you know, being someone that doesn't really understand what you guys are talking yeah. about when <laughs> it comes down to <laughs> the technology part of it, but being able to go to these plate to these fabrication labs and use them or tech shops mm -hmm. use them for one day for a specific need that I may have maybe I'm starting a company or something like that and I need a proto prototype but having someone there that can help me out and have these machines available mm -hmm. that's yeah. pretty cool well I think it's no, interesting I'm sorry go ahead no go ahead well I think it's interesting because um, you know we have often had this discussion of you know the future of the replicator uh, and having the ability to uh, manufacture whatever you need at home and and we've often said you know we, we can see it probably within our lifetime the uh, the, uh, the kind of the disappearance of the actual store and you can just uh, order your files of whatever products you want and, and, and fabricate them at home and to me having this technology which was only available industrially for uh, you know you know 50 times the cost um, to have it available so uh, inexpensively and I, in such a small package kind of helps tie that together that we could possibly see this appliance in the future that could uh, you know 
fabricate products in your kitchen, the, you know, it's the size of an oven that has metal and glass and plastics and wiring. You know, since mm -hmm. you're doing metal, you can you can print wires and and the insulation around it, and you can actually produce not not just inanimate objects but other machines, maybe even electronics. I mean, it, it's obviously in our uh, you know that's kind of pushing it, but but um, it opens the uh, the door of possibilities. You know, seeing this shrink down so quickly. I agree, and I think this is interesting because again, it's a different material you're printing with. Well, we, when we were at the Maker Fair, uh, there was somebody that was printing with a filament that was made out of conductive material. Ah, so so they were able to then add LEDs at certain places, and it would light up. You know, interesting um, things like that. So yeah, I mean, I I find I, I like the 3D printers that are using different materials. You know, different way of doing it, like this one's doing it. Um, so yeah, I, I can't wait till we start getting the 3D printer that prints with energy. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that'll be nice. That's, yeah. that's <laughs> when you start getting closer to that. To the, the replicator. replicator. Yeah. <laughs> any, uh, any. Um, I mean, news? I like it. I, any news I on your printer? I think it's a little expensive, unfortunately for me, but yeah. yeah news on our printer. Oh, in our printer, yeah. The shipping has started, oh, so good. the we should have it here by the end of the month or early next month. Because shipping, you know, we were, we're a little further back in the shipping order, mm -hmm. but yeah, the, the shipping has started for the 3D printer, so I'm looking forward to starting some projects next month. Cool. I've already started sketching out some things that I want to start modeling. I've started doing research on some models I want to make, but yeah. Are you? Maybe yeah. Uh, maybe I'll start working on the models themselves, and we can talk about it next week a little bit. Oh, that'll be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, good. I mean, what? How do we feel about this product? Buying it? Not buying it? Um, I know you'd buy it because it, 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 for your shop it would definitely work the, the, for the metal shop uh, yeah, although everything you can do in this printer you guys can probably do with one of your machines well yeah we could manufacture uh, parts out of something solid but if you know for, for the purposes of prototyping uh, this will be very interesting and actually quite inexpensive um, right. I don't know if I told you my water jet had a catastrophic mm -hmm. failure and yeah. for the cost of the repair of the water jet I could have bought 10 of these so, <laughs> so yeah, you gotta, you know, it's always a perspective. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Oh, you're bitter. Yeah. <laughs> but the water just a cool machine, though. Yeah, I, I want to go back and use yeah. some more. The water just some more. Um, all right. Yeah, that's cool. I like the product. Um, I, I'm gonna wait till it gets a little more affordable. I agree. Yeah. Cool. So let's uh, move on to what are we working on. Uh, what's everybody working on this week? Well, Ray, why don't you go first? Sure. Um, I recently uploaded a new video. Uh, you know, I've, I'm always making stuff in my shop, mm -hmm. but uh, you don't really get to see the shop. So I said, you know what? Let me make a video touring the shop. So uh, I nice. went through and I discussed my my space in general and some this of this is your personal shop, my right? own not, personal not shop, correct? Yeah, not not the metal shop. Correct. Uh, but I will be doing one on the machine shop probably in the next few weeks mm -hmm. but uh, cool. you know I have a very you see my, my shop at home is very small um, mm -hmm. you know probably it's efficient yeah. I like to call it not small it's efficient <laughs> so I know that some of my uh, some of my viewers uh, were kind of curious so I went ahead and made a video to show them that you don't really need a whole lot of space and you don't need you know a whole lot of stuff and mm -hmm. you can make anything uh, anything you want yeah that's very cool I haven't seen it yet but I, I mean I, I know that I know the shop fairly well because I've 
I, I remember when it was a garage that could barely fit a car yes. <laughs> before you made it your shop. So, so yeah, we we've seen it plenty. But I'll, I look forward to seeing the video. That's pretty cool. Yeah. What about you, Claudia? What are you working on? Um. Well, tomorrow I'm going to be at a uh, just a very impromptu um, guest for a at, a at a podcast at another podcast. Yep. It's through like We Act Radio. It's a radio talk show here in DC, and I don't. Know, I guess it is. A, no, it's not a podcast. Well, they do also podcast. They also have it as a podcast, but they also have it on a specific mm-hmm. station. Hmm. Yeah, and I'm going to be talking about gentrification and. Yeah, it was just through like, you know, just the fact that I did I did a couple of uh, research, like I did analyses on displacement, which is not often done, and looking at geo, like the the geography of displacement in in the region. So yeah, it will be interesting, and it will be mm. cool to go over to go to yeah to Ward Eight and do a little bit of radio. And that's tomorrow. Very cool. That's nice. tomorrow. Oh, yeah, cool. at Eleven o'clock. Yeah, very cool. cool. So you gotta have to let us know so we can either listen or maybe we can listen to it afterwards on, on when they put it online or something. Yes. Get okay. a link for it. Cool. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Um, yeah, for myself, I've been working, and I gotta go bring one of my men. I've been working on some furniture pieces that I'm gonna be adding some photographs and some art to to, to sell this weekend. On, uh, I'm back to selling uh, art at a. It's called the Art Rave near Dupont Circle. And I'm selling prints and artwork and whatnot, so I'm I'm working on a couple of furniture pieces that incorporating some art. And similar to the desk that I I think I put photos up earlier in the year, in on the on the Facebook page. So yeah, yeah. upcycling furniture. Yeah, upcycling some furniture. That sounds good. Look forward to seeing the pictures. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. All right. Well, I mean that's pretty much the show. Let me check my notes, but I think that uh, pretty much the show. Why don't uh, you guys tell everybody where we can. Get more about hear more about us. Uh, well, uh, for me, you can find me on my YouTube page. Uh, we'll have a link to that and the uh, lathe homemade lathe Facebook group. If you're interested in building a lathe or curious about it, there'll be plenty of information there. Mm-hmm. Cool, Claudia. Cool. At thecityecologist.com and um, on Twitter as well, City Ecologist. And also, um, definitely, please follow us on Twitter, Made Podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also have a Facebook page that's called Made, Pod- Made the Made Podcast as mm-hmm. well. And uh, and you can find me on Twitter and on my website. It's called it's, uh, at City Aperture on Twitter and cityaperture.com for my website, mostly photography, but also have my blog in there. Um, yeah, so that's cool. Everybody, f- you know, follow us, check out the stuff, and uh, and we're hopefully going to be going to some uh, mega fairs that are coming up. So maybe we'll get to meet some people. Mm-hmm. So cool. It's been a good show, guys. Yeah, great show. Thank you. And this is a uh, lucky number eleven, number twelve. Twelve, twelve. Awesome. Number twelve. Yeah. Lucky number twelve. So that what is that? Three months of it? Four months of it? What is that equal to? Three months of it. Yeah. Three months. Yep. Yeah. So that's uh, uh yeah, quarter of a year. <laughs> Our first quarter. Yeah. Cool. Close to yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, we're gonna work on the on a sign off. We're gonna, we're gonna come up with a, a catchy phrase for the sign off. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening. All right. All right. See ya. Have a good one.